Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 12th, 2017, and this is episode 2003 of the Survival Podcast. And you know what day it is? It is Friday! 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 That's right, it is time for the Monster Show of the Week, the Expert Council Q&A Show. And I've got a great one lined up for you today. We are going to hear from not six, but seven, I think it's seven, six, seven, Expert Council members plus yours truly today. What are we going to talk about? Manganese for better eyesight from old Dr. Bones, dealing with a vehicle that pukes up fuel. What do I mean? I mean it goes bleh, and fuel comes out. Yeah, uh, Charles Sandville, the humble mechanic, will talk to us about that. Uh, weighing your beehives, exactly how do you do it and why? Michael Jordan has mentioned that many times, but uh, it's now precipitating a question. Well, how do I do that? Why do I do that? Why do I care? Michael talk all about all that today. Dealing with health issues in pigs, and kind of a... Kind of a touchy one for the pig, anyway, from Darby Simpson. High-protein diets and cancer risk from Gary Collins. Dealing with flyer blight on your f- flyer blight fire blight on your fruit trees with Nick Ferguson. Say that five times fast. Dealing with fire blight on your fruit trees. Go for it. Anyway, choosing a first knife for a kiddo from Patrick Rohrman. And me on the ins and outs, the good and the bad of Harbor Freight Tools. Never had a question on them before, but I have some experience with Harbor Freight. Good and bad. And uh, I actually like them for what they're good for. We'll talk about that today. All that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, you know I've always been a fan of Backwoods Home Magazine. Well, how about this? How about Self-Reliance Magazine from the same people that brought you Backwoods Home? Many of you know I've been a Backwoods Home subscriber for over 20 years. Dave Duffy and the crew over there have brought out a new magazine simply called Self-Reliance Magazine. It's at self-reliance.com online, and you can learn more about it by the link in today's show notes. But it's amazing. Just take Backwoods Home up the production value, take out all the politics, and go 100% hardcore homesteading, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And that's what you get in Self-Reliance Magazine. Check them out today, self-reliance.com. You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust. Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have two from Alex Shrug today. They are the taking of Iraq. One, two, three. We have Dewey the Deer and Promethea the Horse from Southpaw Ben. And I have Rush Limbaugh is addicted to prescription drugs. And so is my friend from Alex Shrugged. Today, I also have some notable deaths for the year 2003. Idi Amin, age 78, disconnected from life support, president of Uganda and killer of an estimated 300,000 people. Long before he was on life support, somebody should have set him on fire. I mean, just seriously. Maurice Gibb died this year, age 53. He was, of course, singer-songwriter and member of the Bee Gees. Barry White dies this year, age 58, complications from diabetes. Bass baritone, romantic singer. Here's a little note on that. The national birth rate takes a dip over the next two years. It's not much, but it's there. 
And Johnny Cash dies at age 71, complications from diabetes. Uh, Singer-songwriter, of course. If I had to tell you Johnny Cash is, you, you just, you would, it's like Harley Davidson. I have to explain, you would understand. His wife, June, died only four months uh, earlier. So there's some belief that it was one of those types of things. And that does happen in some couples. This year in film, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, Disney's Finding Nemo. Are you starting to feel old? <laughs> These things that came out in the early 2000s, man, for me, it's just like, Finding Nemo came out in 2003? Was, was it 14 years ago? Are you kidding me? And Matrix Reloaded, Matrix Revolutions, and Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines this year. TV had some pretty good stuff come out this year. Mythbusters. I loved Mythbusters. I, I hated to see them go. That also, 14 years ago, Mythbusters started. Penn and Teller's Bullshit. Loved that show. And Two and a Half Men, uh, sitcom. Said, uh, Alex Shrugg said, it sounds like the odd couple with a kid involved, but I've never seen the show. Alex Shrugged. Two and a Half Men was a show that started out as good as it would ever be and did okay for a few years and then just, just slid into the toilet. And I, I really feel like the producers of that show, after they had their whole falling out with Charlie Sheen and Charlie Sheen left, um, completely put it through the sewer and ruined it with Ashton Kutcher as a part in it. Uh, and, and kept it alive for like three more seasons of just garbage to ruin any legacy that Charlie Sheen would have had out of that show. I think the blood was that bad because they literally committed suicide with the show and they yet kept it on the air. It made no sense to me. Um, this year in other news, Governor of California, Gray Davis, is recalled. Hello, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Martha Stewart is indicted for using privileged information to make stock deals. Columnist Robert Norvok mentions the real name of a CIA operative in his column. Shh, it's Valerie Plain, the beginning of a witch hunt. New Hampshire's The Old Man of the Mountain Collapses. It's a famous rock formation. It looks like the head of an old man. I actually saw that back in 1993, and I'm grateful that I got to see it while it was there. Uh, a pizza delivery man with a bomb chained around his neck is forced to rob a bank. He says he's being coerced. Then he is blown up by remote control. Later, it is revealed that he had planned the robbery with his cohorts, but thought the bomb was a fake. When he found out it was real, then it was coercion. And mad cow disease comes to Washington State. Brazil, Australia, Taiwan banned the import of U.S. beef. If they had called it drunken cow disease, half the scare would have been taken out of it. Nevertheless, it's a serious problem that cannot be fixed by simply cooking the meat a little longer from Alex Shrugged. Let's take a look at Rush Limbaugh is an addict, is addicted to prescription drugs, and so is my friend from Alex Shrugged. I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about how people get addicted to these, uh, these painkillers. <clears throat> yeah, let's go through this. Several years ago, radio talk show host Rush Limbaugh had back surgery. He was prescribed pain pills in conjunction with his back problems. But when the prescription ran out, he found himself needing more. <clears throat> Apparently, his maid had a way to get prescription drugs on the black market, so she purchased more for him. This is considered a crime. Certainly, the state of Texas takes a dim view of this. I assume Florida does as well. After pursuing an investigation for three years, Florida believes it has a case against him, but Limbaugh's lawyers make a deal. Rush will take a month off and go to rehab. If he manages to stay straight and narrow for 18 months, all charges will be dropped. <clears throat> he will pay $30,000 for the investigation's cost. This is called a slap on the hand, and perhaps it is for someone with lots of money. He returns from rehab. He seems better if he really... Is he, if he really is an addict, it might not be enough. But if he is like most people, rehab ought to do it. I wish him well, says Alex Shrug. Uh, my take by Alex Shrug. One evening I received a phone call from a friend, a prominent member of the community. He is having a problem, and he knows that I am a chaplain down at the jail working with drug addicts and alcoholics, and I keep my mouth shut. He has a problem. A mutual friend of ours, a doctor, has been prescribing pain pills for him for severe back problems. 
It's real, and the dose the doctor is prescribing is not out of line. Yet he can feel it, a craving, a need for more. He's hooked. Crap. I've seen this happen again and again. People have real pain. Doctors, in their compassion, try to solve it with pain pills. Most of the time, actually a lot of time, it works just fine. But every everybody is different. My friend's body has reacted differently. He is a normal being of good character. Exemplary, actually. Better than I am. Yet I must tell him he can never use these pills again. Ever. He has only been nipped by the ringer, so he has a good chance to beat this. And he has. But some people need more help. It is not a weakness of character. It is a symptom of the body that rewards one behavior while punishing another. If you realize it early on, you can fix it mostly. If not, things get harder, maybe impossible. You'll only know when you try, and that is what I recommend. Try, try hard. If you need help, seek help. Call a friend. My friend called me, but I'm not the only one. There are a lot of people out there who have beaten this. All you have to do is find them. Indeed. And I'll tell you that doctors are not always so innocent in this. And it's not, it's not malicious intent. Back in the 80s, there were two very flawed studies done, G, led by pharmaceutical companies, that basically came to the conclusion that if you were prescribed opiate meds for pain, and the pain was real, and the opiates were used only at a sufficient level to relieve you of the pain, they were not addictive. Now, I want to be very clear with what I mean by that. That was an absolute. And that was the story that the pharmaceutical companies came forward with. Not addictive. 100%. And I can tell you that when my wife had major surgery, uh, she was she was being given um, uh, morphine by injection uh, while she was recovering in the hospital. And she expressed concern about that. And they said, as long as it's for pain, don't worry. Well, when she got out, she had major, what you call, would call almost brain surgery. Uh, they cored a hole in the back of her head and did some surgery on the fifth trigeminal nerve in her face for a condition called uh, tic delarue or trigeminal neuralgia, both names for the same thing. And like move your brain stem. This is a serious major surgery. They bolt your head to a table, stuff like that. Well, they gave her some pretty stout painkillers, and she expressed some concern. And that was the exact line the doctor gave her. As long as you're in pain and taking them only for pain, they are not addictive. She was very judicious about how many she used and when she didn't need them anymore if she wasn't in serious pain she stopped taking them and never gave that thing a chance to, to build up and I think that's how pain medicine should be used but when you have doctors telling patients flat out as long as you're in pain you're not going to get addicted and it's, 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 it's retarded on its face who could possibly believe that well you know heroin's really addictive but if you're only using it for pain you won't get it you'd never buy into that well it's the same thing It's the same thing. And it's an outright lie by the pharmaceutical companies, and they knew what they were doing, and their hot-looking uh, pharmaceutical representatives went out and told all the doctors this, who, yep, 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 and believed it, because they were taught to believe whatever they were told in medical school by the pharmaceutical industry. And you want to know why we have a problem with heroin today? A lot of the people that are on heroin today are people that got hooked on opiates and can't afford them anymore, and heroin's cheaper. And what happens is they don't take these medications to feel good. They, they take them to not feel bad. Once they become addicted, they feel so terrible when they come down off of them that it's the only thing that makes that pain and, and, and go away. And I'm not talking about the original pain, but I'm talking about the pain of withdrawals. Now, if only there were a medication out there that was highly versatile and treated a variety of illnesses and diseases and was exceptional for things like dealing with anxiety and pain relief that was highly non-addictive, 
relatively safe that no one ever died from that we can find ever unless they got high and fell off a roof or something, uh, but nobody ever overdosed on. And while it has side effects, they are far more limited side effects than most pharmaceutical drugs. If only there was such a substance. You can fill that blanket for yourself. I'm not going to do it for you today. But I think you know what I'm talking about. And you, you want to know why there's such resistance to it? It's not coming from people. It's not even coming from church people anymore, folks. It's coming from the alcohol industry. It's coming from the prison system. And it's coming from the pharmaceutical industry. And no, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing, but it addresses a lot of problems in a way that's not addictive and doesn't destroy people's lives. But we can't have that because we've had, you know, a hundred years of being lied to and bullshitted, and most people have swallowed it down like spoon-fed pablum. Just my thoughts on that one. I want to remind you guys once again about the Member Support Brigade, or MSB. That's the main way that you can help support the show and the work that we do here at The Survival Podcast. When I put that program together almost eight years ago now, I wanted to always make sure that members got a return of their investment. I wanted to make sure that whatever they paid me, they got back more than that, because I think that's just the smart way to do business. So I'd like to remind you about just two of the benefits you get as an MSB member today that give you basically a 100% return on your investment from day one. First, you get a, a free lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle Royal. Vic Rontala sells that every day for 49 bucks. Western Botanicals gives you their premium membership discount for one year for free. That would cost you 50 bucks. That's $99 return on just two discount membership programs that I get you as a supporting member of the MSB. So consider joining today to learn about all the other great benefits. Drop by the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and to see all the ways you can sign up, scroll to the bottom of the page. And with that, uh, let's go ahead and get into the first call of the day. I have a, a question here for Old Doc Bones on manganese and eyesight. Bones, man, take it away. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, now with close to a thousand, a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Aaron, who writes... I'm sure I've heard you mention that manganese has helped with failing eyesight. I bought some as a result, as over the last couple of years, I've had to get glasses, and I'm progressively noticing it's hard to read print and impossible now to read fine print. I started taking the tablets for at least a month and didn't notice any changes. The tablets contain 12 milligrams of magnesium as amino acid chelate and 1 milligram thiamine nitrate. So I'm wondering whether there's a certain dosage that might work better or if I simply didn't take them for long enough. Manganese is a trace element that is present in tiny amounts in the body. It's an antioxidant that helps the body form connective tissue, bones, blood clotting factors, and sex hormones. It also plays a role in fat and carbohydrate metabolism, calcium absorption, and blood sugar regulation. Manganese is also necessary for normal brain and nerve function, of which the optic nerve is one. Low levels of manganese in the body contribute to infertility, bone malformation, weakness, sugar issues, joint problems, and seizures. It's fairly easy to get enough manganese in your body. This nutrient is found in whole grains, nuts, and seeds, and other foods include bananas, spinach, and green leafy vegetables, and legumes like lima beans. Some experts estimate that as many as 37% of Americans do not get enough manganese in their diet. 
The American diet contains much more refined grains than whole grains. Refined grains only provide half or less the amount of manganese as whole grains. Reviewing a number of sources, I find that only some mention a benefit to eyesight. These benefits range from relaxing ocular muscles that cause twitching to high pressure levels in the eye, also known as glaucoma, to the prevention of cataracts. An examination by your local optometrist can determine whether you're actually developing these problems. You didn't mention your age. The symptoms you're experiencing are seen in most people simply as a result of aging. I have the same problem with fine print as you do. The thing with supplements, including those that contain manganese, is that the effect may vary from person to person. And a product that helps one person doesn't always have an effect on another. The interesting thing about your supplement is that it contains exactly one milligram more magnesium than the upper limit of safe use, at least to WebMD and other conventional medical sites. Tolerable upper intake levels, the highest level of intake at which unwanted side effects are unlikely, for manganese have been established at 11 milligrams by the Food and Nutrition Board. The University of Maryland Medical Center, which does extensive studies on many herbal and natural substances as they pertain to health, doesn't mention a particular benefit to eyesight. Excessive long-term accumulation of manganese in the body has been associated with nerve damage, including Parkinson's disease and others. Whether one milligram more than recommended makes a real difference is really unknown to me, as I couldn't find a lot of information about the amino acid chelate you're taking, other than it helps absorption. With regards to supplements, if you're taking it for a specific effect, say improving eyesight, and don't achieve improvement within a reasonable period of time, it's probably time to discontinue it. That doesn't mean you don't need manganese for good health, though. Many alternative professionals recommend nutritional balancing with some of the foods I mentioned as a way to assure that you're not deficient. Bottom line, get an eye exam from a qualified professional to rule out glaucoma and cataracts and find out their take on the use of the particular manganese supplement you're taking. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do Nurse Amy and me a big favor by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, on our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy, and our podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour, at blogtalkradio.com. Also, don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a special coupon code for discounts off our medical kits and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. Good stuff from Doc Bones, as always. He's one of the mo most informed medical professionals I've ever had the pleasure of speaking to. He's also a great personal friend of the family and the show and the community. So appreciate Doc Bones always doing a great job for us. Next up, uh, our newest official expert council members. I said I've got new people coming, guys. I'll be making the announcements next week on who's coming. Um, but uh, our, our, right now, our rookie, I guess, if there is on the council, Charles the Humble Mechanic here with a question for him on a car that pukes fuel. Yeah, I'm serious. Charles, take it away. What's up, TSP? Hey, it's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com answering your car-related questions. This one comes from Conrad. He's got a 2011 Dodge Ram 1500 that regurgitates gas after the pump shuts off. So he puts a nozzle in, locks the little thing so it fills it. The pump cuts off, but then spews fuel out. He actually sent me a video of it, and it's a pretty good amount of fuel that's coming out of it. So, of course, he gets the big fuel mess on the ground, and I'm sure the gas station people love him, not to mention fuel spewed down the side of his truck. 
And he also sends some great information that it happens 8 out of 10 times. Doesn't seem to matter what time of year it is, temperature, station, brand, the pump, whether it's raining or not, which Tuesday of the month it is. It just happens about 80% of the time. The dealer sold him a new filler hose, said it would fix it, and $300 later, it still does it. So what do I think? Um, this is... This is a, a terrible problem, but it's one of those that it's really interesting to, to dive into to figure out. So when you fill your car up, there's pressure changes inside of the tank, right? The fuel goes in, the vapor has to go somewhere. It has to come out of the tank. Otherwise, things like this can happen. Or the auto shutoff on the pump is just straight going to shut off. In addition to that, with temperature changes, your fuel in your tank expands and contracts, expands and contracts. This produces vapor. Your vehicle has a system to trap that vapor, store that vapor, and then it sends it up to the engine to be burned in combustion. This is called the evaporative emission system. And there's tons of different designs. They basically boil down to the tank. You have a canister of activated charcoal. It has a filter on it. You have a pump of some kind to pump that vapor up on most cars, and that pump may also do what's called a leak detection to make sure that you don't have a leak in this system. Your fuel tank is also built in with bypasses and vent hoses and valving, like rollover valves in case you, believe it or not, roll over. This will prevent fuel from just spewing all over the road. My diagnostic process for these kind of problems, it's a pain in the butt because it involves you doing something, going to fill the car, and seeing what happens. Or what usually happens is I have to go down to the station, I fill it, I duplicate the problem, I bring it back to the shop, inspect it, and then then we start doing it, and it's multiple trips for a customer. It can be a nightmare. So we want to get access to our EVAP system. We want to look at our fuel tank. On this truck, it's going to be way easier than it's going to be on a small car. We want to put our flashlight on it and see if we see anything pinched, anything kinked, something like that. That's going to be step one, visual inspection. Step two is we're going to want to find the vent line. We're going to take this vent line off. We're going to go to the gas station and fill it up and see what happens. I have a good feeling that you have one of these lines that are clogged. Now, there's tons of different designs and Everything is set up differently depending on the kind of vehicle. So you may have to poke around a little bit to find the right hose to pull. Don't worry, as long as you're on the EVAP line, you're not going to get any liquid fuel out. This is just going to be vapor, so don't huff it or anything, or don't smoke while you're doing this, but you shouldn't have to worry about any liquid fuel. So when we take that off, we're going to then run down and we're going to fill it up and see what happens. We can also inspect our charcoal canister. This is going to be tough because, you know, if you were to take it to the dealer, what something I would do is I would compare how heavy it is to how heavy a new one is. And if the one in your truck weighs like five times more, then I know that that carbon is actually saturated with fuel. This is one of the problems that people run into when they put the nozzle in and they let it stop and then they add that extra little bit of fuel, like the extra buck you know, to get to the next dollar, something my mom always made me do, drove me nuts. Um, th they can actually saturate that charcoal and then cause it to not function properly. Or it can actually break the charcoal up and shoot it into the engine. It usually gets caught in the valve that controls that vapor going into the engine. So the diagnostic approach to this is very, very 
difficult, not hard, just difficult in the fact that it's time consuming. But again, odds are the way this works is you probably have something pinched or a valve that's stuck. Some of the valves are replaceable separately. And unfortunately, some of them and a lot of them really are built into the plastic molding of the tank. The only way to get them or service them is you get them free when you buy a new gas tank. So that's kind of a bummer. Unfortunately, that's just the way it is. You can also try, this is kind of a shot in the dark, try filling it at a slower rate and see if maybe that solves the problem. It will, of course, take you more time, but if that solves the problem, uh, it may get you out of spending a bunch of money on potentially, you know, kind of worst case scenario, replacing a fuel tank on your truck. But again, start with that visual inspection. Make sure none of the hoses are kinked or you don't see any rodent damage or anything like that. Uh, and, and then kind of move out from there. Also, you know, even though the check engine light may not be on, there may be a fault stored for something in the evaporative emission system. That's a system that it can be semi-common for the light not to come on because it passes sometimes and fails sometimes. So Conrad, great question. I hope that helps. I hope that gives you a couple of things you can do yourself without having to pay anybody else a bunch of money to try and diagnose that car because what I just told you I would do is probably what the tech that you take it to is going to do as well. Guys, thanks so much, TSP community. I really appreciate you. I'm proud to be on the Expert Council. Don't forget that I'm taking the questions that I answer and putting them on YouTube in a video. So not only can you watch me talk, but in this case, you can see the fuel spewing out of Conrad's truck. That alone, I think, is worth watching the video. So guys, thanks so much. Keep the questions coming, and I'll talk to you again next time. Good stuff from Charles. I want to add one thing to it that doesn't really have anything to do with what he was talking about directly or the question, but it does have to do with kind of etiquette, protocol, whatever you call it, when you're fueling your vehicle. And, you know, He mentioned trying to get that last little inch of fuel in there, that type of thing. One of the things I think people really need to do, because I'm not sure if when I've seen this happen, if it was done by some malicious asshole um, or it was done... Uh, by somebody by accident, where maybe they they just shut the pump off instead of uh, un, un, you know letting the the pump kick off. But there was one day I was getting some fuel for my truck, of course diesel fuel, and um, I did the slide in your card thing and uh, pulled picked up the uh, the pump handle and fortunately turned it away from myself. It was an old school one where you flip the the little latch at the bottom of where the where the nozzle sits in. So I hit the diesel button and flipped that, and it went boof, and it, it, it puked out um, a good, you know, I don't know, three or four cups of diesel fuel. Just blew out of the holes before it triggered itself to let go of the, the little latch. So when you can put your fuel in and you hook that latch, and it'll just keep running. So somebody had put it away with the handle on the pump pulled back. Well, you know, that could hit somebody in the face. That could get all, you know, like if you had somebody next to you, it could get all over somebody. Um, the odds that somebody's going to catch you on flames or something for it was pretty low. But I mean, it's it's not a good thing to be bathed in gasoline or diesel fuel. So I'm going to say, please, when you're ever getting fuel, make sure that when you're putting pumps away, that that's not the case. And ever since that one time's happened, I've only ever seen it once um, personally, but I've heard of it from other people seeing it too. I've made it a habit that whenever I go to get fuel, I check to make sure that handle's not been locked back. Because it's something we're so accustomed to doing, we just do it, you know, mindlessly. And I could see somebody being hit in the face 
and having serious damage to their eyes over something like that. Gas or diesel fuel in the eyes would be a bad thing. So just be aware of that. Next up, I have a question from Michael Jordan on weighing beehives. Mike, take it away. This is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of mead. My question is, Michael, you talk a lot about weighing your beehives. What should a beehive weigh out? What should? Why should I weigh my beehives? How do I weigh my beehives? And why am I worried about my beehives? Can I get your thoughts on this? And why I need to weigh my bees? Paul from Pennsylvania. Well, Paul, it's important to keep tabs on your bees. But sometimes it's also important to give them their space. Bees don't always like it too kindly to having their homes opened up, especially if you're going to do it every day. Often you want to have an idea of how your colony's honey production is coming along or the population growth. But talking... And looking are a couple different things. You know, if you're going through and doing an examination, every frame can be stressful on everybody involved, the beekeeper as well as the bees. Weigh your hive should give you a good idea of how many pounds of honey or even how many bees are inside, with each worker uh, contributing a maximum of, oh, one-twelfth of a tablespoon of honey in their life. This will give you actually like gratification of the amount of work your colony is doing when it produces its honey. It also tell you that if you need to feed your bees, if there's not any honey flow going on, um, you know, I would know the mass of the nectar and pollen gathered during a day if I could uh, weigh my beehives. I could tell how much water has been evaporated at night by weighing my beehives. I mean, one pound uh, is roughly about one U.S. pint of honey. So by me weighing my hives, I can actually see what they're gathering at different points of the day. I would know the colony rate growth of daily nectar collection as nectar flow begins, as I checked it during the day, and then even parts of the week. So I could accumulate and seeing what those growths are. And if I really want to get intense, I can see what the honey flows are at that time, then just checking to see what the pollen is, to see what the flow is of that honey, grafting my floral count. It will help you know if you're looking at a hive that is may or is going to swarm. If it's extremely heavy, it's a possibility. Or you can see if you just lost bees to a swarm. I would know the population of a runaway swarm, estimated at 3,500 bees per pound, so I can see how many bees are gone by my highest weight. I would know the number of bees foraged by the monitoring of loss of weight of bees in the morning and then every few hours after that during the day, seeing the fluctuation of bees in and out during the day. I can compare my highs with other highs um, locally near my location to see how my highs are doing compared to the others on growth. I can even check my highs against my own highs from previous years to see if I'm improving as a beekeeper as well. I mean, if I could weigh a hive, I would know a lot more than I do now. And I think that's the one thing that people need to start doing. Um, so 
Here's some things I can see as a keeper and as a rough guideline for you. First, you need to get the weight of your hives before you put bees in them. So put them all together, get them all set up, put them on the stands, and weigh them, and get a starting point. Or if you already have bees in your hives, get a starting weight in January and go month to month until you want to check on more things and go week to week, day by day, checking honey flows during the day as well as swarm populations during the week. A shallow 10-frame super full of honey ought to weigh about 20 to 30 pounds. A medium super will weigh 30 to 40 pounds. A deep super will weigh 60 to 80 pounds. A deep hive body full of bees, brood, and honey should weigh about 80 pounds. So... How much should your hive weigh altogether? It depends upon the boxes you have, the equipment you're using, the population growth, many different things. But if you have two deep hive bodies, that's 160 pounds already. Subtract the weight of your hive bodies from the total weight and you get a sense of what your honey supers are. So if you did pre-weighing and got this next weight, you're going to actually know what's inside your hive. One other thing to really think about, the goal is to build an accurate, uh, I would say even electronic beehive scale. And try to do it for a frugal price, for like $50 or so. Something that you can move and adjust. Maybe weigh four hives in a couple minutes. And it needs to weigh up to about 250 pounds without really disturbing the colony. Now remember, it's possible for a big, full hive to get up to 300 pounds. So getting a good heavy scale is needed. The one that I use is like for luggage, but you can even use one for like game meat if you're going to hang a deer in your garage. So also with this I've enclosed for Jack a link on how to build your scale by Instructables. That's a pretty good one, kind of cool. But I just did a workshop at Freeman Family Farms in Callahan, Colorado. And I got to show Greg Burns from Ohio how to use a luggage scale. And we uh, weighed hives that had bees in them, and we weighed hives that didn't have bees in them, seeing about the average of about the 10-pound increase when comb and brood's all starting to lay out. So he was really kind of impressed that weighing the hives could really show a difference of increase of growth of population as well as nectar flows. So I really want you to kind of think of those things that weighing your beehives is very important. right? You should be weighing your beehives at least once a month. Me, I weigh them every 9 to 11 days so I can see growth and upkeep. And it also I'm getting closer to swarm season or if I'm looking to see if I'm getting closer to darsa nectar flows. So sometimes uh, around June I'll do one check every day of the week just to see if I'm going to get any swarms that may occur. And then sometimes around oh August to September, I might do it every time during the week, just to see if I'm starting to lose nectar flow and if the bees are starting to eat their own storage. That way I have to feed them. So I'm hoping that will help you guys out on weighing your beehive. Thanks, Paul, from Pennsylvania for reaching out. Uh, everybody's looking for information, and that's why we're here. So I'm the Bee Whisperer, Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company.
Remember to buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a cottage industry because we all have to start someplace. And hey, help your fellow man because one day that guy that's getting help may be you. Good stuff from Michael, breaking it down and making it easy to understand not just the how, and but the why. And I think the why is important when you hear something like this. Uh, next, I have a question for uh, health considerations for pigs for Darby Simpson. And uh, pigs that ain't supposed to have uh, hogs, boars that ain't supposed to be boars no more, still having half a boar. How about that? That's the way we'll put it for now. What do I mean by that? Darby, explain it. Hello, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of the Grass-Fed Life podcast and DarbySimpson.com calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, I've got a question from Kenny in Ohio who is uh, raising his first group of pigs this year. And actually, Kenny's got a, a few questions. Um, they picked up, he and his wife picked up six male pigs that were supposed to have been castrated uh, by the farmer that he bought them from. And he uh, believes that it now appears there's a couple of these guys that might have one testicle. Uh, and he's kind of wondering what he needs to do about it. He's curious if I've ever seen this before and, uh, you know, what happened or is, you know, is it possible if this is a hernia? Does he need to have a vet come in? And he's also wondering about boar taint um, as well as some, some general health care issues that we use on our farm here in Indiana. So, uh, Kenny, let's dive into this and kind of go through all your questions one at a time. First of all, congrats on getting the pigs, man, and taking a step forward with six pigs. I'm assuming that unless you're feeding a small army, you are doing this with the intent uh, to make some money. So good on you, man. Glad to hear that. Glad to see you taking a step forward there. Um, have I seen this before? Yes, I absolutely have had this happen uh, a couple of times, and I've I've had pigs come in. You know, or I might buy a group of, you know, 15 or 20 little feeder pigs and yeah, one of them got missed, you know, and it's possible that that's what happened here. What's more likely to have have, uh, have happened, Kenny, is that one of these testicles uh, basically came in late and that's, you know, not an uncommon thing to have happen occasionally. I'd say, you know, probably no more than one to five percent of the time. Um, so one out of, you know, uh, one, one to five out of a hundred pigs, um, male pigs, you, you might have that happen where one of the two testicles is not present. It hasn't dropped at the time uh, when the castration was done. It's, it's actually kind of up inside. And sometimes that, that testicle will never drop. And, um, we'll kind of circle back around to, to bore taint here in a minute. If, if that's the case, that testicle is really not an issue. You're not even going to know it's there until your, your, your butcher, uh, you know, does his, his part and uh, lets you know that it was in there. But if it drops late, it is something that we do need to deal with. Now, you, you would ask, you know, is it possible that this is a hernia? Is it possible? Yes, but most likely it's not. I mean, if it, if it looks like a testicle, if it's where the testicle would normally be, uh, if it's, you know, kind of shaped like a testicle, it's a testicle. So most likely that's what you've got going on. I, you know, if you want to uh, take a photograph and, and email it to me, I'll be happy to take a look at it. You can also do some image searches online to, you know, flesh that out a little bit further. But most likely that's that's what you've got going on. So if the, the pigs are, you know, a little bit bigger, and, and you didn't say how big they were, but, you know, if they're over 50, 60 pounds, um, castrating them, 
with uh, just by simply restraining them is not fun. I have done it, or I should say I was uh, part of a five-man team that once castrated a pig that was about 125 pounds, and it took all five of us to do it. It took four guys to hold him down and one guy to do the deed, and uh, I would not suggest it, um, not without some kind of physical restraint. I mean, if you had a smaller head gate that you could put them in, then you know you could go ahead and look into looking uh, to do that. If you, you had a head gate system for like a sheep or a goat, possibly that might work. I don't know. It's just a suggestion. But most likely, what I would tell you to do, and <clears throat> what what I've had to do on a couple of occasions, is if you can find a large animal vet, which is a lot harder than you would think it is. If you can find a large animal vet, they can probably help you out, and it, it might uh, benefit you to offer to take the pig to them in a livestock trailer, uh, you know, with clean straw in there, take it to their office to, you know, kind of mitigate how much time they've got, uh, you know, wrapped up in something like this. But they can actually give them a bit of a sedative that won't totally knock them out, but it will basically, you know, put them on their side. They, they might go to sleep for a little bit, and then they can get in there and quickly and safely take care of this. And since you've, you've got two pigs, uh, just, you know, obviously take them both in, get them both working on at the same time. Um, the reason I tell you that you need to do that is, uh, well, for a couple of reasons, if you happen to have any females running around, uh, once these guys get to be, you know, 200 pounds or so, they're going to be viable and they'll become sexually active. Um, and you'd asked about boar taint and there are, there are very few things in life, Kenny, that I will, State, you know, just hard and fast, out loud, uh, that I that I think I'm right on. Boar taint, absolutely, emphatically, without a doubt, does exist once a pig becomes sexually mature. And anybody that tells you that that is not the case is flat out wrong. They do not know what they're talking about, and you will absolutely notice a very bad flavor in your pork if you get these guys butchered with without having the testicle removed if, you know once they hit that age and the only way to avoid that is to 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 take them in and butcher them around 150 175 pounds to really be safe and honestly you're wasting a lot of effort at that point because you're not going to get much bang for the buck in terms of the meat you're going to get off of them they're just not going to be ready really to butcher until they're you know 240 250 260 on up towards 300 pounds and by then they're absolutely going to be sexually active and uh, you're not you're not going to like the results. This is a this is a solid. Ask me how I know because I had someone tell me that boar taint was not a real thing, and I I believed them. And we went through this, and it was absolutely real, and it absolutely tasted awful, and our customers absolutely hated it. So get it taken care of. Get a vet involved. Do what you got to do. Um, but particularly if you're going to be butchering these guys to uh, to sell them, or you know if you're selling them as a uh, you know half and holes to to people you know or whatever, totally get it taken care of. Um, you you'd also ask about you know what do we do for healthcare for our pigs? We very simply have uh, DE mixed into their feed. Uh, we have that done at the mill. It's I want to say it's about one half of one percent, so half of a pound per 100 pounds of feed um, that takes care of any kind of uh, internal parasites they might have uh, pigs are are prone to roundworm roundworm larvae actually can live up to 10 years in the soil and uh, they can pick that up and, and then those dudes can really take off and um, 
you know, it won't necessarily like kill them per se, but it, it, it keeps them from gaining weight. Um, and it can become a mess and then it can infect lots of other people and, uh, or not other people, but other pigs, uh, you know, in your herd there. Um, and it's just something that you, you don't really want to have around. So DE is pretty inexpensive. We find it to be very effective at, at taking care of that issue. We, and I know this because we, we once had some pigs that, that came in here, uh, from a farm we'd never bought from before and we never bought from them after that. Uh, but they, they had, they had some pretty bad roundworms and we put some D in their feed and man, just three or four days later, we had dead roundworms laying all over the ground, um, where the DE went through and, and, and killed those parasites and broke up that cycle. So that's what we do. Beyond that, uh, really not a whole lot. Uh, if you start running them into the winter when it gets cold, which it doesn't sound like you will be, you do have to watch for pneumonia. And I'll, t- I'll tell you that you do need to treat that with a standard antibiotic if and when you see it come on. I was pretty hardcore against doing that early on. And uh, after I watched a pig die slowly over the course of a few days by suffocating from pneumonia, I had a paradigm shift. So we do use that reactively. Um, that's, you know, something that you just kind of got to do, um, it, you know, to, to save them if they get a bad case of pneumonia because they, they can they can die and that kind of defeats the purpose. So, uh, beyond that, the only other thing I would tell you to be, uh, careful of here specifically because of the time of the year and because you're running these pigs in the woods, you would want to go ahead and vaccinate them for tetanus. If you take them in and get these testicles surgically removed because tetanus lives in the ground and there's a very high likelihood they could pick it up this time of year. It is the perfect season to, to get tetanus out in the woods for a pig. So, uh, keep that in mind and also uh, get this done early enough that you can give them at least 30 to 45 days recovery time before you butcher because if you did have um, boar taint already in there, if they're already sexually active, you'd want to give that uh, enough time to work itself out of their system before you butchered. So anyway, there you go, Kenny. There's a whole lot there. Hopefully that helps you out. If you got more, shoot me an email. You know how to find me. Uh, for everyone else, uh, feel free to check me out at darbysimpson.com. There's a lot of free blog articles that you can read out there. I have not been doing a whole lot of writing as of late because I've been part of producing a weekly podcast that's now up to about 60 episodes, uh, 60 hours of listening out there on this kind of stuff, all kinds of stuff, you know, direct marketing, uh, how to, how to raise all this stuff, you know, holistic context, you know, what you should or shouldn't do on your farm. If you dig this kind of thing, go out and check out grass fed life that I do each and every week with my good friend Diego Footer at permaculturevoices.com. You can find a link to the podcast there. You can also find it in iTunes. Thanks for the questions, guys. Keep them coming in. I'm always happy to come on and answer these for you. Hopefully you gain some knowledge and you find it beneficial. We will talk at you later. As always, everyone, have a wonderful weekend and take care. What a wealth of knowledge we have in Darby. And that's the kind of, some of that stuff there is, you know, if you don't figure out what to do about it, it can lead to a lot bigger problems. So uh, Darby had quite a few questions for him this month, and he he got back to me and said, please do this one first on air because some of the stuff's time sensitive. So an example of a community member that doesn't just do a great job helping but really cares about helping too. Next I have a question for Gary Collins on high-protein diets and their correlation to cancer risk. Gary, take it away. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins of PrimalPowerMethod.com discussing and answering all your questions about primal, paleo, health and wellness, living off the grid, and just flat out simple living. Got a couple really exciting things I want to announce. Uh, Remember, I'm in the MSB membership site, so you get 10% off all of your orders if you're a member. 
And I also have a new podcast, Old Dudes New Tricks, so make sure to go check that out. And I just launched a store called The Simple Life Outlet, where I put all the products that I've used and recommend and reviewed all in one place. So really excited. And I'm putting out a grocery store, online grocery store coming out soon. So be looking out for that stuff. And that kind of blends into our question today. And this has come up, I, I believe this was hot because of a study two, three years ago about how a high-protein diet can cause cancer. Oh, boy. It was based on one study um, that I remember. It was... The data was somewhat flawed. It was done better than most, but it was out of USC. I'm pretty sure it was out of USC. And here's the thing. USC is not a bastion of meat eaters, except for probably the football and men's basketball team. You've probably got a lot of vegans, vegetarians, especially in the faculty and the people who are doing the research for the university. So you got to take it with a grain of salt. It's skewed, I'm sure. Now, not to say that everyone there is a vegan or vegetarian, but I'm just saying you got to look at the source where it's from. I mean, if someone in Berkeley said killing animals will give you cancer, well, you'd expect that from Berkeley, right? Uh, just you got to take it with a grain of salt. But with this study where it was mainly flawed in, in two main areas. They call the high-protein diet to be 20% of your calories, and that is not a high-protein diet. A high-protein diet would be getting probably around 50% of your calories in protein. So now what they did, too, is they did it through, they did it through I believe, a study. Roughly, it wasn't a huge group of people, but it was considered primarily middle-aged People, if you ate a high-protein diet, that you had something like a three times greater chance of having cancer. Here's where it was greatly flawed besides that. They also tried to confirm it by doing an experiment with mice and injecting them with melanoma, if I remember right. So they had cancer, then feeding them a high-protein diet. Well, what they fed them was primarily composed of cornstarch was the main ingredient, the second ingredient was processed casein, which is from dairy, and it has been known in isolation to increase cancer by itself. But is that because it's casein or is it because it's a highly processed casein from CAFO dairy products? See, that's where it starts to get complicated. There was nothing organic used to this. I'll tell you that right now. Not that I could see, not that they mentioned, and they never do. Then a multitude of extra sugars were thrown in there. <laughs> So how is this a high-protein simulation when it's primarily composed of starch and simple sugars? Well, of course, and they said it had a huge rise in insulin growth factor one. Well, duh, yeah, you just dose the, the mice with a bunch of sugar and starch. And starch, remember, is a complex uh, – is considered a more complex sugar. It, 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 it goes into a simple sugar like everything. It depends how you look at starch and where the starch come from. We won't get into that. But now he also asks, you know, usually a high protein diet, what we consider is a gram to a gram and a half per body pound. So if you were a hundred pounds, you would eat a hundred grams of protein or, you know, 150 grams. Now this is what I have used as the athlete muscle gaining or muscle mass gaining protein ratio. That's where you get to the gram to a gram and a half per body part. If you're an average everyday person, 
which most of society, most of us are, even I don't eat that much protein. I have done it in the past. It is uh, better to do, do while you're young because as you age, you have a harder time digesting protein because you produce less hydrochloric acid as you age in your stomach, which is the primary breakdown of protein in your stomach. So with that being said, you know, we, you'll see that older people actually need to consume more protein to maintain muscle mass. Well, that sounds weird, Gary. Well, it's because, again, we can't process it as efficiently as we age, so we need to increase our protein consumption in order to kind of gain the the same amounts as we did when we were young. I know, a little confusing. So what did this high protein study show? Not much. If you're eating a proper diet, and remember too, we don't know where these protein sources came from. Where were these people? What were they consuming? They said high protein, but was it it just said animal protein. What that could be anything from protein powders to, you know, cheese, eggs, animal flesh. Who knows? We know what was in the mice gruel because it's usually pretty common when they do a study like this. We've kind of become that's where we go look because we're pretty sure it's garbage. So was the were these individuals eating high amounts of pasta, breads, sugars, you know, grains, uh, legumes? We don't know. We have no idea what the diet was. We just know it was 20% protein. And that protein source, we don't know what it is. So what I would recommend for most people, and this is, this is what I have found over many decades now, not only working with myself, but other people and being in the paleo and primal crowd, which if you look, paleo and primal crowd, they aren't dropping off like flies because of cancer. Matter of fact, I have not known anyone right now in the paleo crowd who's doing it correctly who's ever gotten cancer. Now, I'm not saying you're not going to get cancer if you're a primal or paleo. I'm just saying from a general observation, this is not a scientific study. This is a Gary observation. So I would recommend for the average person about 0.75 or three quarters of a gram of protein per body pound. That tends to be the good area of where you can go. And again, it's got to be from a good source, organic, you know, grass fed, you know, raised by an ethical farmer and mixed in with a good source of vegetables, nuts, seeds, and some fruit, because those are all your antioxidants. There you go. Nice, balanced, paleo-primal diet, and you're fine. All those work synergistically to help you be healthy, to fight cancer, tumors, all that good stuff. I hope that helps. I know that was a little long-winded on a somewhat simple question. Again, Go uh, check me out at primalpowermethod.com, and you can leave uh, any comments in the comment section. You know, I, I completely agree with that. I, I've gotten to the point now where I almost don't care what any study says, even if it says that which I agree with. Um, I have absolutely no faith in these studies any longer because they're always funded by people that want a certain result. So like I'm saying, even when it says something that I, I tend to agree with, I, I, I kind of look at, well, let's look at the actual evidence and make a determination. And what comes out of academia anymore is useless. And I, I, I don't say that with any happiness. Um, other than I'm, I'm happy to see the whole damn piece of academia and all these universities crash and burn the way that I think they're gonna, it's gonna happen over the next 10, 15 years. Um, like I said, I think that they're, they're, they're digging their own graves right now. What's sad though is it doesn't have to be that way. There is so much money 
in that system. And despite the idiocy, there is so much knowledge and so much talent. And if the university system actually did impartial research like they purport to, there's so much good they could do for society. But instead, they're worried about the next grant so they can get their next grant or the next endowment so they can build their next building that they'll name after some ass, asshole that doesn't deserve to have a, a freaking hole in the ground named after them, let alone a building, so that they can court stupid people and taking out massive loans and sending their kids to universities for the, uh, the, the lifestyle and for the, uh, the experience instead of like hard, cold education so they can get a job and better themselves. Even though that's what they sell it on. And uh, I've just given up. Like when somebody says, well, there's a study that says I don't give a damn. I don't give a damn. Show me proof. Show me evidence. A study means nothing to me anymore. And I wish that wasn't true. I really do wish that wasn't true. But every time I see one of these studies that intrigues me enough to pick it apart, I always find it to be just bullshit. And what really opened my eyes more than anything else was when uh, I found out about the war against Comfrey. And I looked at the two studies that are cited to prove that comfrey, when used internally, causes liver cancer. And when I looked at the methodology used in those studies, I lost 100% of my respect for supposed you know, scientific studies. I realized at that point that you might get a valid study, but you could never look at a study and accept that it was valid because it was a study. You'd have to actually go into it and pick the data apart. You'd have to read more than the synopsis. You'd have to read how the data was collected, where it was collected from. And if you didn't do that, then the study was about as valid as a claim on like one of these long-page sales copies that says, you know, some substance is going to kill you or save your life. It's just basically worthless. It could be true, but the fact that it was a study was no reason to believe that it was true. That sucks, but it's where I think we're at. On to better things. We've got a question for Nick Ferguson on dealing with fire blight on your fruit trees. Got it right that time. Again, try it five times fast. Hey there, it's Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com, and I have an answer for Charlie, and he wants to know if there is a natural way of controlling fire blight on fruit trees. Well, Yes, there is a natural way, and the best way, in my opinion, is through prevention, followed by preemptive biological control. You kind of fight fire with fire, and by that, I mean with a bacterial spray. But I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Let's start with what it is, and then talk about how to prevent it from being a problem in the first place. Because I don't know about you, but I would much rather learn how to keep my plants and animals healthy rather than deal with trying to get them healthy after a problem. And just as full disclosure, none of this is from first-hand experience. I've luckily gotten away with really no disease issues on my plants that I know of other than blight on my tomatoes. So I researched this extensively so I could get you a good answer despite my lack of experience dealing with plant diseases. And just so you guys know, Michael Phillips himself chimed in on this topic for me, and he is the author of a really great book called The Holistic Orchard. And when I asked him for his thoughts, he basically said that you should do what I've always done with my plants. But I'll get to that in just a little bit. So I suggest checking out his book. He encapsulated a ton of information that, for me, I thought was kind of common knowledge, but he's got a lot of great stuff in there. Um, and he really makes the information accessible. So you should definitely check out that book. I, it is on my 
top 10 must read books for homesteading type stuff. If you're growing trees and bushes and stuff like that, if you're growing fruit, then you definitely need to check out that book. And if you order a book from him, just tell him Nick Ferguson says thanks. Um, so first off, this is a bacterial called Erwinia amylovora, and it attacks pretty much anything related to roses, like apples, pears, etc. And it forms a canker that oozes a nasty yellow fluid, and pollinator insects, as well as birds, will spread the disease. So the first thing is to make sure you don't ever let the cankers form. If you see one, get rid of it. If you have cankers already existing on the tree, prune it off completely, preferably in the winter while everything is dormant, including the bacteria. And the normal suggestion is to remove a minimum of 8 to 12 inches of material past the infected portion. And if you see it pop up on the tree during the spring and summer, remove it ASAP and make sure you use a 70% rubbing alcohol or a 10% bleach solution between each cut to disinfect your pruners. Just rub a cloth with that solution on your pruners to make sure that you don't spread that disease from cut to cut. And then all the material that you remove, burn it and burn it all the way, fully consumed because you want to kill that bacteria. You definitely don't want to use that material as chop and drop or compost or mulch material. Kill it with fire. Next is avoid nitrogenous fertilizers, especially during the spring or humid, warm growth times of the year. That soft new growth is the most susceptible. So if you use a lot of high nitrogen fertilizer sources like chicken manure or some some kind of a hot manure or even just a synthetic fertilizer, which I don't suggest, if you use higher nitrogen fertilizer sources, then you'll push it to make more new growth. And that's not a good thing when it comes to disease prevention. And make sure you have nice open trees so moist air can leave the tree canopy. The more humid it is, the easier it is for the bacteria to get a foothold. So we're trying to do as many little things to disadvantage that bacteria and advantage the tree towards greater health. And the next thing... And one of the most important things is to pick blight-resistant cultivars. They're going to be the best way to go if you can combine blight-resistant cultivars with good, clean practices and focus really hard on building excellent soil health. You should be able to keep it mostly at bay. And if you're unlucky enough to have it infect the main trunk of the tree, well, it's probably best to remove the whole thing, including the stump, to prevent it from spreading to your other plants. I hate to say that. And other than those preventative measures, you can use a really good aerobic compost tea spray to help outcompete the bad bacteria. You can also use a sulfur spray like a calcium polysulfide spray, also known as lime sulfur on apples when the tree starts blooming. I believe that's actually organic certified. And then you can follow up with a bacterial spray like Serenade, which is also organic, and you use that Serenade from full bloom through petal fall. And if you have pears, just use the Serenade. But I'll tell you the tactic I've taken and... That's what Michael Phillips suggests as well, which has proven to be quite effective for me so far. I only pick cultivars that are resistant to the most obnoxious diseases in my region. It may be different for you. And I'm careful to make sure I use good preventative measures with my plants. And above all, this is the 
the key thing here. I focus on soil health and I use compost tea as a foliar spray. So in my humble opinion, prevention is the best medicine. By using that compost tea, you're inoculating and you're, you're covering everything in this just hugely diverse cross section of either benign or helpful bacteria. And what they do is they outcompete all of the pathogenic bacteria for the most part. And, and they really help you bring that spectrum of bacterial life into a healthier side. And it just kind of crowds everything out that, I mean, they engage in chemical warfare with each other, the different bacterias. So I think that's a fantastic tool in your arsenal. It's one of the most underappreciated and underutilized things in my experience. So just keep prevention in mind and keep on those plants. Make sure that you're paying attention to them and and keep your eye on them because as soon as those cankers pop up, you need to get them out of there. I hope that helps you out, Charlie, and anybody else who deals with that awful disease. Keep the good questions coming, everyone. You can send me questions on permaculture, holistic design, plants, gardening, and homestead skills, and all sorts of things. You can find out more about me by visiting homegrownliberty.com. Do good things. And to round things out for the council today, now I have a question for Patrick Warman on picking a first knife for a child. Just coming to you once again with today's expert council question of the week. Today's question comes from Zella listener Ford Ferguson, 1986. Question, what knife would you recommend for a child's first knife? I have four kids who would like a recommendation for their first knife. I plan on getting each of them one or two throwaway knives before progressing to a better quality blade. I want to budget around $50 just in case they lose or break it, but still better than Walmart specials. This will be a midpoint before I plan on a Genesis neck knife later on. P.S. When will we see more Val logo Genesis? Great question. First off, about the Val Genesis, it's available now, but only for a limited time. The sale ends Friday, May 26, so don't wait. Get yours today. I started my kids out young with knives. In fact, my oldest son was clipping a cheap fold-on knife to his diaper when he was little. He also took an old neck knife sheath and shoved a butter knife into it for carrying it around for a while. I think that boy likes knives more than I do. For a while, he carried a 9-inch fillet knife around. Thankfully, I caught him one day before walking into Walmart with it on. I can just imagine what kind of commotion that would have stirred up. When they are young, their knives are not very sharp at all. There's no sense in spending a ton of money on one that they'll probably just lose or try cutting rocks with. For older kids and in the more like the mid-range knives, I'm going to suggest something like one of my first knives, the Kershaw Leak. I really like the design of this of the Leak. I would suggest put some Loctite on the screws though before you lose them. Another option is the Spiderco Tenacious. Although I personally think some of their designs are ugly. They use quality materials and make a quality knife. I personally wouldn't criticize anyone for their choice of knives. What one person finds appealing, another person finds appalling. 
but you asked my opinion, and the leak is the knife I personally own and enjoy. There are some timeless classics like the Victoria knot, which I like the concept, but not a fan of knives that don't have a locking blade. Overall, I'm glad you're getting them started young and helping people realize knives are great tools that everybody should carry. Helping kids learn how to handle a knife safety is uh, important. A friend of mine just posted on Facebook that they were out for a walk and came upon a bird tangled in a string. Thankfully, they had their knife to free the bird. You never know when you're going to need a knife, so remember, two is one and one is none. Thank you. This has been Patrick Rorman of mtknives.net. Okay, so I have I have two that I'll I'll throw into this, and what I liked about Patrick's tips for knives is that they are not cheap knives, and your kid may lose the knife, he may you know try to cut a rock with it and break it or something. It could happen, but there's probably a fifty fifty chance that. You know, he'll kind of move up in knife, and that knife will still be around. And both of the knives Patrick mentioned are good knives in their own right. And because of that, you know, they might be dull and scratched up and all, but they can be, you know, cleaned up and sharpened up, and uh, they can become, the, you know, they can have it forever. This was my first knife. And maybe give it to their kids someday because they're the kind of thing that lasts like that. And the two knives I'm going to give you, I think, fall into that bucket as well. But there's something I really like about them. One is the uh, Victor Knox that Patrick kind of mentioned the company, but not a pattern. The Swiss Army Junior. Um, I, I really like that knife. It's a very simple Swiss Army knife. It doesn't have a lot of stuff going on. It was the uh, first knife that my son had. It's got a small blade, a large blade, which is really not very large. The large blade actually does lock on it, so it gets around that concern. Though I'm not that concerned with this type of pocket knife having a locking blade. I'm really not. It's not the stuff you're doing with it. You're not likely to close it on your hand anyway. Um, it has a small saw blade and it has a Phillips screwdriver uh, bit in it and a little ring and uh, you know it's got the little slide-in uh, toothpick and tweezers as well. Um, It's the Swiss Army Junior 9 uh, knife by Victor Knox. And to me, this is a great little knife, and it's the kind of thing that I see a kid, that, like once they get past uh, it and they're not really using it day to day, you put it in a drawer somewhere and you save it. it, it the big thing that they did with it is the larger blade actually has a, a blunt tip. Uh, the, the tip is actually rounded, And I'm telling you, your kids are more likely to stab themselves with a knife when they're learning than cut themselves. Especially if you make sure you don't want to give a kid a razor blade sharp knife. If it's that sharp when it comes out of the pack, freaking dull it a little bit. I'm serious. Now, I know the old saying, you cut yourself faster with a dull knife than a sharp knife because it slips and whatever. But you cut yourself a lot deeper with a sharp one. So I'm not on giving kids you know, a scalpel-level sharp knife uh, until they really develop some uh, some. Uh, skill set with it. Uh, the small blade in that one does have a pointed tip, but they're more likely to use the larger blade for most things. It's still not a very big blade. And again, if they slip and they poke themselves, I'm not saying you can't stab yourself. I'm going to say you stab yourself a lot less. Um, the next knife, the tip of this knife is a sheep's foot pattern, which also minimizes how bad you would stab yourself, but you can still stab yourself with it. Uh, Patrick mentioned the Kershaw Leak. I like that knife too, but it has a very tapered, pointed profile. This one actually costs less. It's an expensive knife, but it's a good knife. Uh, it's called the Coral Creek with a sheep's foot blade by Kershaw. 
They're only about 15 bucks. Um, if you look at the blade profile as soon as you'll see it, you see what I mean about minimizing, you know, stabbing themselves in the finger, the hand, etc. At least to being a little bit more forgiving and having more time to pull back. Because, I, again, I've seen more kids poke themselves with a knife than cut themselves with a knife. They seem to understand drawing the blade across the flesh is a bad idea, but they try to force things with a knife and a lot of times can stab themselves pretty nastily. So, uh, And then always safety talk, etc., but I leave that to you to have your own kids. So let's take uh, the question that I have for me today on Harbor Freight. There's the question as it was sent to me. Jack, what are your overall thoughts on the Harbor Freight chain of stores and their products? What items would you absolutely refuse to buy from Harbor Freight? And what items would you buy from them only since it's stupid to pay more somewhere else? You frequently mention you get what you pay for. You can get one at Harbor Freight for like 10 bucks regarding tools and materials and various homestead projects and preps. My thought for a while has been they're okay for certain tools because it's hard to mess up on a simple piece of steel like a splitting wedge or a piece of plastic like a funnel. But when it comes to power tools, maybe they've earned their poor reputation. You get what you pay for has been proven to me for many years by my dad. Recently, an employee of Harbor Freight told me the entire company is owned and managed by one guy, no shareholders and family members, to satisfy if how bad if they have a bad quarter, just one guy who's willing to be patient when it comes to growth. This has me wondering that maybe a reputation of having cheap Chinese crap isn't quite deserved. Good prices don't always equate to poor quality thoughts. As always, love the show. Okay, so here's how I feel about Harbor Freight. If you're buying a tool that you're going to be a power user of, you're going to use it often and all the time and what have you, it's probably not probably not the way to go. Okay, um, If you want, and with power tools, for your main power tools, it is definitely not the way to go. But if you want an extra electric drill sitting around, um, and you can get one with two batteries for 30 bucks. You know, it's the kind of thing that probably would burn out if you use it every day for six months. But if you're only going to use it when, you know, I've got a drill bit in my drill and I need a second drill and, you know, it's kind of like a backup, I guess they're okay for that. My issue with that, though, is that most of the good tool manufacturers, DeWalt, for instance, you know, you can buy a bare-bones, low-end um, DeWalt 18- uh, or 20-volt lithium-ion drill for like $40 with no batteries or charger. But if you already have tools, you see what I'm saying. Like, you'd be better off picking up an extra battery or two and adding that to your repertoire. So I'm really not big on them for power tools. Um, their plug-in power tools, though, are all right for what they're all right for. Like, you know, I always have a plug-in circular saw, a plug-in drill, a uh, plug-in scroll saw. Stuff like that, you know, it's so easy to build well. And when I say well, I mean decent. That if you primarily use cordless tools, but you want to have some extra stuff around, it's okay for that. Though most of my stuff like that is like Black & Decker. I find like your entry-level plug-in tools from Black & Decker to be about the best quality tools with decent warranties, etc. in that price category. Hand tools. Um, you know, if you want an extra set of wrenches or something, they're fine. I mean, really, you know, how many of us are going to go out and buy, like, high-end, um, you know, uh, uh, what do you call snap-ons or something like that, unless we're professional mechanics? Uh, especially when you want, like, one, like, set of, like, you know, basic mechanics tools to put in a truck that's, like, your, your extra truck. I don't see the reason to go out and spend, you know, hundreds of dollars when you can get one for 75 bucks down there with wrenches, ratchets, screwdrivers, etc., so that... 
this is not stuff you're going to be using every weekend under your shade tree. This is stuff that if you break down, you have some tools. And maybe you can't afford to have a full-on, high-quality set of tools in both vehicles. It's A lot of times, it's, it's, it's things that you don't really think of that seem to be pretty good from there. Um, I have one of the small pancake uh, air compressors from Harbor Freight. It saved my butt a bunch of times, and it was cheap. And you know, given that whenever you're buying something that's like 100 bucks or more, uh, well, you can do it anytime, but when you're buying something 100 bucks or more, you can always get 20 bucks off. If you Google Harbor Freight 20% coupon, you can always find a coupon for them for 20% off any single item. And there's some other things I've bought from Harbor Freight. Their, uh, their presses seem to be pretty good, though I don't own one, though I have something very similar. I have a, tw a 10-ton hydraulic splitter for splitting logs from Harbor Freight. That thing's paid for itself 100 times over. And I think I got that for like 75 bucks shipped to like middle of nowhere, Arkansas, because we were living in I got tired of, you know, mule mauling my logs. And I was like, really? Yeah, and if it doesn't work, I can send it back? Okay, fine. And, you know, we still have it. Since I don't burn wood here, we don't use it as much. But I split stuff for the, the fire pit and all. And it's, it is fantastic. It's, it's not... You know, it's not as effortless as an electric one or electric hydraulic one, but, you know, you kind of use it like a ski machine. You each handle one, dum, 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 and, man, it does a great job of splitting wood. Probably the best thing I've ever bought from Harbor Freight, and it's so good that when I left it laying on the ground after unloading my truck, my wife ran over it with the lawnmower. She likes to run over shit with lawnmowers. She just does, man. She even knows it. My hoses, you know, whatever. Stuff that's not even, like... There's not really a good reason for it. You just, bam. He's like, ah. And she goes, oh, I hit something. Okay, so one of those. She hit it. She tore it up really good. I, the, the straps that hold it on and all. I probably could have fixed it. But they're like 38 bucks. And it's this tarp that bolts to the tailgate of your pickup truck. And you roll it out. And then when you get a load of wood chips or a load of dirt or something like that, you put a crank in it and you crank it. And it unloads the truck like a conveyor belt. I have had heavy stuff like lava rock where you had to unload a lot manually before you could pull it. But, I mean, if you get a load of wood chips or compost, it just, and you just crank it, and it just slides right out of there. Obviously, any kind of dirt compost, whatever, gets really wet if it's been raining recently. You know, you might have to unload a bit of it, but it's worked really well for that. I, I, the way I look at Harbor Freight is a case-by-case -case basis. What do they have? Whenever I get the little thing in the mail from them, I always look through it, and I'm always like, you know, that's, uh, that, that, I guess the bad is that sometimes stuff seems so cheap that you buy two or three things just to have it, and then you have to spend some real money, and you could have invested that real money in one good solid tool. So I, I think that's kind of the way you have to look at this. You know, things that the, the handyman or the contractor uses every day, but, you know, us normal homesteaders use two or three times a year, but when you need it, you really need it. Those are things you can look at getting from Harbor Freight. Uh, you know, they sell angle grinders for 20 bucks. You know, I put up the, my preferred one is like 30 bucks from Black and Decker on Amazon Autumn of Day recently, but, you know, you can get one for, for friggin' 20 bucks. And if you're only going to use it once in a while, hey, you know, they make the uh, the little multi-sanding tools and stuff like that, the stuff like for trimming edge and stuff, like really expensive ones of those, um, you know, with the little cutting tools and all that you can go. I can't think of what they're called, but they're an oscillating multi-tool. And they do sanding, they do cutting, you can cut trim. They're really great for when you're doing like uh, wood floors or more specifically like when you're doing the trim for wood flooring or for the laminate flooring that looks like wood and tile uh, where you can make little 
oddball cuts. They sell one of those for like 25 bucks. You know, if it's something you're going to use occasionally, it's, it's fine for stuff like that. Um, another thing that I, I found them to be, uh, pretty useful for is, um, again, the air, co uh, air compressor. I have found that to be just, you know, uh, I can't remember what size it is, but it's like the small pancake, uh, style air compressor. And that's been great. I've had times where my tractor, um, you know, got a flat and it's, you know, all the way in the back of my property. And, uh, you know, you look and there's this big thorn in it. So you come back to the house, you grab a plug kit, you take your little pancake air compressor, and I know you're thinking there's no power out there. Do you drive your Stephen Harris battery truck over? No, I plug it in, I put 100 pounds of air in it, it's not, you know, 100 pounds of pressure in it, it's not heavy, and I take it in my plug kit, and I walk out to the back of the thing, pull the freaking thorn out of the tractor, and pop a plug in it, and... Use the air that's still in the air tank, plenty of air to get it basically filled up, and then pull it back up to the house and get the air pressure right and things like that. I mean, things like that I just don't see spending a ton of money on because, you know, I'm not running a full-on shop, and they just have a tremendous amount of value to me that I can have inexpensive items like that that are here when I need them, but I don't need them often. Another item we use a lot for just a lot of things around here, for, we use them for the barter blankets, we use them for uh, animals, we use them for packing stuff in the truck we don't want it to scrape, are the movie, the movie bl moving blankets. Uh, they basically sell the same style of moving blanket that you get from places like U-Haul, for like six bucks a piece. And they're like a six by eight foot, something like that. Five by eight foot blanket. Uh, really heavy duty. I mean, they do wear out in time, but they're just really a, a great deal for what they do. And, you know, not having your stuff, you're moving around your truck all scratched up, things like that, quite valuable for, for things like that. We use those also for wrapping up like faucets and things like this. So we have so much water on property. When we get our freezes, uh, spigots that are out in the middle of a field, I'll take one of those blankets and I'll completely wrap it up, weight it down with a couple rocks, and they do a good job of preventing me from having busted faucets, at least a lot less than I would if I didn't do it. As an aquaponics guy, one of the greatest things they ever had is they had two pumps, a three-quarter horse and a one-horse, Stainless steel body, dirty water pump that were lifetime warrantied. And uh, they were like 70 bucks. And you paid five bucks to renew your warranty when you tra traded one in. I mean, that was, that was so valuable. And they were more of like a sump pump that weren't really designed to run continuous. But in an aquaponics system, they would. And, you know, six, eight months into it, they'd burn out. Well, you got a new one for five bucks. And, and, and to me, I think that might be why they got rid of them because of the warranty on them. If they would bring them back for 60, 70 bucks a piece, and, and I just have to buy another one when I need a new one, I mean, there's nothing on the market close to what performance those pumps put out for the money. And when you use them the way they're intended, which is like a sump pump in a basement with a float switch, and you know, they come on when they need to instead of running continuously, they last plenty long. And basically, they're a pump with a garbage disposal. And I called, I saw it on their site because it had been discontinued, and I saw it on their site yesterday because I need another one horsepower one. And I was like, oh, is it available in stores only? I'm like, great, they have them back, right? Call up the store like, no, man, they're discontinued. There's not a store within 50 miles of you that I can see on my inventory thing that has one. Um, I do find that when you go in store that their staff is friendly and helpful at the two locations that I, I go to. Um, I will say that I guess what says it all 
is I'll decide, hey, why don't I take a trip to Harbor Freight today? They'll have some on sale, and instead of ordering it, I'll like I'll go down there and get it. And it's always fun to look around, and I'll I'll spend you know like a kid in a candy store up and down the aisles looking at stuff, and I see a lot of stuff. I'm like, oh, that's cool, or that's a good deal, or whatever. But I usually don't leave with much more than what I went to get. Where send me to Costco to get three things, and I'm coming home with a truckload of shit, right? Or send me to Lowe's or Home Depot, and I'm coming home with four or five things I didn't intend to get when I went there. So a lot of it. You know, it looks good. It gets you in the door. It's kind of lost leader stuff. But, you know, some of it is valuable. I mean, they have, you know, cheap measuring tapes. Jeez, you might as well buy a few of those whenever you're there because we all lose them constantly. And having a cheap one that breaks eventually is better than not having one when you need to measure something, stuff like that. Um, you know, punches, chisels, they're really cheap. Um, they're not going to last a long time. They don't do a great job, but... If you're using punches occasionally, um, it's better to have one than not have one, that type of thing. So I kind of look at it as backups or light-use tools or very specific things that make sense for you on a given basis. I don't hate them. Um, I don't poo-poo them. I don't talk badly about them. I don't say it's all cheap Chinese crap when I know a lot of people say that. And I know the tools you're buying, they have a better brand name, but they're also made in China. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. I will tell you that who's becoming the modern-day craftsman is Lowe's with the Cobalt brand. Um, they're basically warranting those tools for life. You bring a, bring a broken one in, they give you a new one, just like Sears used to do with Craftsman. So that's something to check out with your hand tools especially there. Um, with that, I think we've got everything wrapped up for today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. One of the ways you can help support the show that we do is to do your online shopping through one of our web pages at tspaz.com, T-S. P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. When you go to tspaz.com, you'll see the, uh, a link to the Amazon items of the day. You can see the most recent reviews of our Amazon item reviews. And you can also see a link to click on over to Amazon to see their deals of the day. You get on over there, you're not interested, you're not really looking for a deal of the day, but you've got to buy some on Amazon, go through our link first. That's all I ask. If you do that, you'll help support the show and won't cost you a dime. Just go to tspaz.com first. But I do have these uh, reviews for you every day. I'm bringing back another Encore item today. Um, these are the dried chili peppers that I use to make my chili, chili garlic oil that I, I cook a lot of stuff with, especially chicken wings. And uh, as far as I know, I'm the only one teaching this particular method of making a chili garlic oil. And these are the peppers I use for it. I don't know how... They sell these peppers for what they do. I mean, they come in a package from Thailand. Like, I don't mean they import like an ashlot of them. I mean, like, there's like Taiwanese on the packaging, you know, and they're, they're so affordable. Um, and they're just an incredible high quality, uh, dried, uh, chili pepper. They're 360 for three and a half ounces. And, and they, they, they ship for free. I, I, I don't. I don't understand how this quality product comes into the country for what it does, but I'm not going to argue about it. Um, let me tell you how to make the chili garlic oil, though. I've, I've, I've talked about this before, and I'll give you an example of what to do with it. So the way you make the uh, Jack's Famous Chili Pepper, uh, chili Garlic Pepper Oil is you take about one to two dozen dried chili peppers and about a half a handful of black peppercorns, and tillichery is the best as far as I'm concerned, and one whole garlic bulb, about ten cloves, and you do... Peel it, but you don't have to. Um, you don't have to chop it up or anything. Just throw the whole cloves in, and uh, two cups of peanut oil, 
You can use other oils if you want to, but peanut oil handles higher temperatures, and I think as far as you know, vegetable-type oils go, it's, it's probably one of the best as far as from a health perspective, especially when you're going to cook at higher temperatures, which you will do with this oil at times, certainly higher temperatures than I want to cook olive oil at, for instance. So the way that you make this is, uh, is, is really pretty simple, And uh, all you do is, is put all of your ingredients into a, a medium saucepan. Heavy bottom is best for saucepans, by the way. Put that on the stovetop and start bringing it up to temperature. You don't want to cook it. You want to bring it up to where it's almost about to start frying. You start to see little bubbles forming on your garlic pieces and your chili pepper pieces. Um, about 275 degrees if you have a thermometer is about the right temperature. And when it hits that temperature, kill the heat and put a towel down on your countertop. Cover the pan with a lid, put that on the towel, that'll protect your countertop, and wrap up the pot in the towel. And that's going to hold the heat in, and it's going to steep in the hot oil, and it'll, it'll last, the heat will last longer. Let it sit there about two hours. Then take your, your stock pot with all your stuff in it and dump it into a blender or a Vitamix or whatever you have. And blend the snot out of it. The peppers, the peppercorns, the garlic, everything. Just blend the hell out of it. And then dump the oil through a strainer into a ball jar for storage. Store it in the refrigerator. It'll last longer that way. And it's just, from a food safety perspective, a safer way to do it. One of my favorite things to make with it is chicken wings. And the way you do that, just put your wings in a bowl, add enough of the oil to coat them all, toss them to evenly coat, and roast or grill them right away. Uh, or you can add a dry rub of your choice. And if you want my dry rub, I tell you how to find it in the review that I've done. Uh, that's kind of a chili pepper, paprika dry rub that goes on top of that oil. And my God, is it good. And if you're one of these people like, I don't really like hot peppers, these peppers are pretty hot. But when you make that oil out of them, it doesn't really come out a really, really hot thing. It's just a mild spice. But the flavor is incredible. I haven't actually tried it yet, but these are not roasted peppers. These are dried peppers. So if you've got one of these, you're also getting a whole shitload of, of seeds for free is a way to look at it. I'm sure they would sprout and grow for you if you want to grow your own. I look at it this way. For, for four bucks for a big bundle of them straight out of Thailand, I'll, I'll buy them, but you know you could try growing them. I might, I might actually try growing some next year when I have more grow space set up with the aquaponics expansions and things like that. But uh, check them out, Thai chili peppers, uh, and they are from a company called Asia Trendy. And I don't know if they're trendy, but I do know they're straight out of Asia. You can tell by the uh, packaging. And as always, if you do your Amazon shopping at tspaz.com, and keep checking out tspaz because we might add some other shopping options, other ways you can support the Survival Podcast at tspaz in the near future. Last but not least, let us talk today about the song of the day. Man, I like this song. And uh, John Adams said he was hoping that in this next, you know, this last 15 years to pick some songs that I hadn't heard of. And a lot of the songs he's picked, he hit the mark. I've never heard of them. Some of them I've never heard of the artist. This one, um, Amy Lee. I'm, I'm pretty familiar with Amy Lee. Uh, this is Everybody's Fool by Evansense. And, of course, Amy is the lead on that. I uh, really like a lot of her music. And, and this song is so perfect 
for what we teach at the Survival Podcast. It really, when I, when I was listening to the words of it, it was taking me back to when I was railing on way back at the beginning of the show. I'm talking like nine years ago, the Discover Card commercial. It's like, it's a consumer driven economy and that's great, you know, and just the, the, the blind consumerism and stupidity, uh, of the American sheep. And that's really a lot of what this is about. Reality TV idiocy as well. Here's uh, what it says about this song on Song Facts. It says, A track from the debut Evan Sense album, Fallen. Everybody's Fool is about people who are fake and superficial and people that pretend to be what they are not, just to be accepted and loved by society. Amy Lee wrote it when her sister started turning into one of these people. She was trying to say you should always be yourself for you and no one else. It doesn't matter what other people say as long as you're happy with who you are and you aren't pretending. When Amy Lee sings about fake people, she could be referring to certain celebrities or possibly even the Roman Catholic Church. The line toward the end, you are not real and you can't save me, could be interpreted as Amy calling out the Pope, saying, in effect, he is not really a man of God and is just looking for power politically and socially, not spiritually. I don't know if there's more to the story on that, if there's some kind of... Because there was a lot of um, a lot of tension between the Catholic Church and celebrities at this time because of the cover-up of a lot of the stuff going on with, with abusing children by priests. So that's just something to keep in context here. Uh, it says, in our, 19, in our 2016 interview with Amy Lee, she talked about her taking the song. It's changed over time. Quote, it's interesting to write songs when you're in high school and then have them become your most famous songs because you, you, you stuck, uh, you're stuck singing the stuff you were hung up on when you were in high school when you're 34. I always seemed so preachy about someone else's life. I think there are a lot of ways to look at it. The thing I thought I knew then that I know better now is that you never know what's going on inside anybody, no matter what they seem like, even if they're the bully, even when they're uh, the Becky, whoever, maybe that's her sister. Uh, the video was directed by Philip Stoltz, who also did clips for My Immortal and Bring Me to Life. It opens with some dialogue as Amy is seen shooting a commercial in makeup and a blonde wig. The rest of the video shows her in various fabricated looks, providing stark contrast for her distinctive lifestyle. Um, yeah, I think there's something to be said by what she's learned. And I think that it's easy for us to be judgmental. And I think on, on the type of topic of this song, yeah, and this is what Hollywood sells, and this is what Madison Avenue marketing sells. But I think it's also easy for us to paint a broad picture of people who are successful, whether they're entertainers or business people or what have you. And, and that's a mistake. Like, we should judge people on what they actually do, not just, oh, they must be because they are. Because what, what I've been amazed by is how many people hate rich people, but they want to become rich. It's like, you're not going to ever be rich because you're going to sabotage yourself. Because we can become what we hate, but we usually can't become something positive that we also hate. So, in other words, you you can be you can be you know, you know you can hate people or just let's say hateful, pathetic pricks, and then you can become one yourself. But that's a negative thing. But when something actually like being wealthy, especially if it's properly earned wealth, is a positive thing. I don't think it's a bad thing to be wealthy. But if you despise something that's positive, you'll sabotage yourself to where you'll never get there. And a lot of times it's easy to look at people and think they have it easy. I remember when I was just a general laborer type guy, and I was working my ass off, and I always thought my bosses were such dicks until I became my boss and thought, oh, now I get it. And then I always thought, like, you know, the people who were at the top of the corporation, like the regional VPs and stuff like that, they're dicks, and their life was so easy until I became one. And I was like, oh, now I get it. 
And that's as far as I had to go to realize that you can't judge that other man until you walk a mile in his moccasins. On the other hand, you can judge stupid, arrogant, and fake behavior. That's what this song's really all about. And it's about how easily led people are to spend their money with thing, on things that don't really matter. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Dinner's ready. Pepperoni! Mmm, I love it. And you made it all by yourself? That's our girl. There is nothing better than a good lie. Oh, I'm so much more than I thought you were.